folks. Thank you very much for joining me today. My name is Sam, and this is Sidecar Stories, and we are about to launch into chapters five, six, and seven of Sherlock Holmes, The Sign of Four. A grand old time. Uh, we have embarked on this second mystery, and it sounds like historically the first mystery was regarded as a little lacking in polish. This one is definitely feeling a little bit cleaner. Um, I, I can feel uh, the world a little bit more cleanly. I can feel the moment-by-moment -moment action a little bit better. And uh, as we follow Sherlock Holmes and Dr. John Watson, we find we are in the midst of another adventure. Um, at this point, it sounds like they've been living together for a couple of years. As far as I can tell, uh, Watson surely has, at this point, a, a strong concept that Sherlock Holmes is an anomaly. He's a he's a special guy. This is not just you know uh, parlor tricks or um, uh, pranks. <laughs> Sherlock Holmes is a a, a truly unique individual. Um, and at this point, I'm you know I, I kind of hope that, and we have not heard mention of it yet, so it's possible that I'm right. I hope that Watson is finding a bit better place for himself in the world. Because remember, a lot of the drive in, uh, I almost called it season one, I guess that would kind of be appropriate, but a lot of drive in the first book was um, that Watson stayed with Sherlock, um, both in their lodgings and also sort of socially, because Watson was so terribly disconnected from the rest of the world. He just needed something to kind of interest him and tether him, um, something to occupy his time. And... Uh, you know, we haven't heard mention of that yet. Read four chapters, and we haven't heard mention that um, that Watson is still feeling, you know, like a piece of flotsam. So I am encouraged by that. Hopefully, this is this has become less of a codependence and uh, more of a true relationship. But I suppose only time will tell, folks. A spot of review: the science of deduction. Chapter 1, Science of Deduction. Um, Sherlock Holmes and Watson are lounging around. Sherlock is bored. And when Sherlock gets bored, he delves into substances. Uh, sounds like right now he's working on some cocaine solution injected. Um, he, he doesn't treat himself well when he's bored. And uh, Watson is, you know, uh, he feels like he's in a place where... He is not only has some responsibility, but some, uh, you know, some bit of <laughs> uh, uh, reasonable authority, I suppose, as a friend to make some comments on this bad self-medication. Um, Sherlock is not treating himself well. Uh, fortunately, they get a case in. Uh, a woman arrives who says that basically um, my father disappeared 10 years ago, she says. Well, why come now? Well, uh, about six years ago, I started getting mysterious packages, and these mysterious packages each contained a very valuable pearl. I have them here. Okay, well, that was six years ago, and it's been happening every year. Why now? Well, this time, a pearl has arrived with additional notes to come and meet me through the mysterious sender of these packages, meet the mysterious sender, um... At a specified location, bring some friends if you don't feel comfortable, which would be understandable. Um, she does so and wants to conscript Sherlock and Watson. Um, Sherlock and then Sherlock conscripts Watson, if we're being precise. They head out to this meeting and meet one... Uh, oh, what's his name? 
uh, Thaddeus Sholto. Thaddeus Sholto. Um, and Thaddeus Sholto tells the long story of his father. He and his twin brother have a father. Uh, and their father and uh, Miss Morstan's father were about as, as fast as friends can be back in the war. Um, and unfortunately, his father was there when her father died. So 10 years ago, he was there. But there are concerns because they brought back with them a, I mean, a, a stolen treasure from India. They don't want police attention about this. They don't, uh, they're not totally sure uh, of the, the situation, but, uh, you know, six years, uh, or four years on, they get wind of Miss Morstan, they start sending her this money, um, what bits of the treasure that they can find, because their father did not tell them where the treasure was, uh, he died on his deathbed, uh, ranting about a wooden-legged man, a wooden-legged man who actually did appear at the window, uh, of his deathbed, right as he was telling the location of the treasure, he never got to it, he dies, the wooden-legged man disappears, and these two brothers are left without an inkling of where the treasure might be. So they take the one piece that they do have, this chaplet, which I looked up, and it's a, a little bit like rosary beads, um, and they send it in tiny pieces to this woman so that they can stay anonymous, but also not feel like they are, uh, you know, hoarding a treasure to themselves that she rightly deserved. Again, I want to emphasize uh, who, the person who rightly deserves this is probably in India somewhere, but uh, this is how they are processing it in their own minds. Um, let's see here. Uh, I think that's about where we're at. Uh, and they, they head off to the Pondicherry Lodge, which is where... Um, uh, uh, Thaddeus's brother Bartholomew, incredible names, uh, Thaddeus's brother Bartholomew has apparently just discovered the location of the treasure. Uh, it is at the Pondicherry Lodge where their father once stayed for quite a long time and where their father, in fact, died. Excuse me, where, uh, where her father died. Okay, there we go. There we go. Um... As per usual, <laughs> trying to review uh, for a mystery story is always so whack because you have to decide, like, what's important, what's too important to mention, what's a red herring, you know. Uh, so, all this to say, if you would like to go back and listen to the full thing, the full deal of it all, because that's very important uh, when it comes to a mystery story, uh, I would encourage you to do so. Go ahead and use the links command. Uh, and if you want to, uh, you can find this second link in the first link, linktree slash sidecar stories, L-I-N-K-T-R dot E-E slash sidecar stories. Of course, you can head straight to that connecting link with the playlists command. There are two different link trees. One of them is nested into the other one, but uh, linktree slash sidecar stories and linktree slash SCS playlists. There you have it, folks. Hey, everybody. Thank you so much for joining me, and I do hope that you will enjoy Sherlock Holmes, The Sign of Four, Chapter 5. <laughs> Wait. Wait. I have art. I didn't build the scene out. Hold on. It'll be just a second. <laughs>
Oh man, it was such a clean transition too. Did you hear it? <laughs> it was so clean and I goofed it. Oh, I goofed it clean up. All right, where's my dang picture of the Pondicherry Lodge? Here we go. All right, let me just, uh, y'all, y'all, uh, here's a rare treat. Y'all get to watch me build this out in real time. Pond, oop. Pondicherry Lodge. Once again, just an awesome name. Um, Gotta get my art installed. Here we go. I think we're at the wrong time of day, but this seems to be sort of, I don't know, culturally appropriate. Um, there. That's probably fine. Awesome. This is what it looks like when you've been doing this for a long time, gang. <laughs> don't watch me be human pay no attention to the man behind the poorly kept beard chapter 5 Chapter 5. The Tragedy of Pondicherry Lodge It was nearly eleven o'clock when we reached this final stage of our night's adventures. We had left the damp fog of the great city behind us, and the night was fairly fine. A warm wind blew from the westward, and heavy clouds moved slowly across the sky, with half a moon peeping occasionally through the rifts. It was clear enough to see for some distance, but Thaddeus Sholto took down one of the side lamps from the carriage to give us a better light upon our way. Pondicherry Lodge stood upon its own grounds, and was girt round with a very high stone wall topped with broken glass. A single, narrow, iron-clamped door formed the only means of entrance. On this, our guide knocked with a peculiar postman-like... Oh, is there cried a gruff voice from within. It is I, McMurdo. You surely know my knock by this time. There was a grumbling sound and a clanking and jarring of keys. The door swung heavily back and a short, deep-chested man stood in the opening, with the yellow light of the lantern shining upon his protruded face and twinkling, distrustful eyes. Like you, Mr. Thaddeus. But who are the others? I didn't have no orders about him from the master. No, McMurdo, you surprise me. I told my brother last night that I should bring some friends. He ain't been out of his room today, Mr. Thaddeus, and I've got no orders. You know very well I must stick the regulations. I can let you in, but your friends must stop just where they are. This was an unexpected obstacle. Thaddeus Sholto looked about him in a perplexed and helpless manner. "'This is too bad of you, McMurdo,' he said. "'If I guarantee them, that's enough for you. "'This young lady, too, she cannot wait upon the public road at this hour.' "'Very sorry, Mr. Thaddeus,' said the porter inexorably. "'Folk may be friends of yours, and yet no friend of the master. "'He pays me well to do me duty, and me duty I'll do. "'I don't know none of your friends.' "'Oh, yes, you do, McMurdo.' 
cried Sherlock Holmes genially. I don't think you can have forgotten me. Don't you remember the amateur who fought three rounds with you at Allison's rooms on the night of your benefit four years back? Not <laughs> Mr. Sherlock Holmes, roared the prize fighter. God's truth! How could I have mistook you? If instead of standing there so quiet, you just stepped up, give me that cross hit of yours out of the jaw, I'd have known you without a question. You're one that has wasted your gifts, you have. You might have aimed high if you joined the fancy. <laughs> you see, Watson, if all else fails me, I still have one of the scientific professions open to me, said Holmes, laughing. Our friend won't keep us out in the cold now, I am sure. If you come in, sir, you and your friends, he answered. Very sorry, Mr. Thaddeus, but orders, they're very strict. I had to be certain of your friends before I let them in. Inside, a gravel path wound through desolate grounds to a huge clump of a house, square and prosaic, all plunged in shadow, save where a moonbeam struck one corner and glimmered in a garret window. The vast size of the building, with its gloom and its deathly silence, struck a chill to the heart. Even Thaddeus Sholto seemed ill at ease, and the lantern quivered and rattled in his hand. "'I cannot understand it,' he said. "'There must be some mistake. I distinctly told Bartholomew that we should be here, and yet there is no light in his window. I don't know what to make of it.' "'Does he always guard his premises in this way?' asked Holmes. "'Yes, he has followed my father's custom.' He was the favourite son, you know, and I sometimes think my father may have told him more than he ever told me. That is Bartholomew's window, up there, where the moonlight strikes. It's quite bright, but there's no light from within, I think. None, said Holmes, but I see the glint of a light in that little window beside the door. Oh, that is the housekeeper's room. That is where old Mrs. Burnstone sits. She can tell us all about it, but perhaps you would not mind waiting here for a minute or two, for if we all go in together and she's got no word of our coming, she may be alarmed. But, hush, what is that? He held up the lantern, and his hand shook until the circles of light flickered and wavered all around us. Miss Morstan seized my wrist, and we all stood with thumping hearts, straining our ears. From the great black house... There sounded through the silent night the saddest and most pitiful of sounds, the shrill, broken whimpering of a frightened woman. "'It is Mrs. Birdstone,' said Sholto. "'She is the only woman in the house. Wait here. I shall be back in a moment.' He hurried to the door and knocked in his peculiar way. We could see a tall old woman admit him and sway with pleasure at the very sight of him. Mr. Thaddeus, sir, I'm so glad that you've come. I'm so glad that you've come, Mr. Thaddeus, sir. We heard her reiterate rejoicings until the door was closed, and her voice died away into a muffled monotone. Our guide had left us the lantern. Holmes swung it slowly round and peered keenly at the house and at the great rubbish heaps which cumbered the grounds. Miss Morstan and I stood together, and her hand was in mine. A wondrous, subtle thing is love. For here we were, two who had never seen each other before that day, between whom no word or even a look of affection had ever passed. And yet, now, 
In an hour of trouble, our hands instinctively sought for each other. I've marveled at it since, but at the time it seemed the most natural thing that I should go out to her, so, and, as she has often told me, there was in her also the instinct to turn to me for comfort and protection. So we stood hand in hand, like two children, and there was peace in our hearts for all the dark things that surrounded us. What a strange place, she said, looking around. It looks as though all the moles in England have let, and let loose in it. As in some sort of the work, on the side of a hill near Ballarat, where the prospectors have been at work. And from the same cause, said Holmes. These are the traces of the treasure seekers. You must remember that they were six years looking for it. No wonder the grounds looked like a gravel pit. At that moment, the door of the house burst open, and Thaddeus Sholto came running out with his hands thrown forward and terror in his eyes. There is something amiss with Bartholomew, he cried. I am frightened. My nerves cannot stand it. He was indeed half blubbering with fear, and his twitching, feeble face peeping out from the great astrakhan collar had the helpless, appealing expression of a terrified child. Come into the house, said Holmes in his crisp, firm way. Yes, do, pleaded Thaddeus Sholto. I really do not feel equal to giving directions. We all followed him into the housekeeper's room, which stood upon the left-hand side of the passage. The old woman was pacing up and down with a scared look and restless picking fingers, but the sight of Miss Morstan appeared to have a soothing effect upon her. God bless your sweet golden face, she cried with a hysterical sob. It does me good to see you. Oh, but I have been sorely tried this day. Our companion patted her thin, work-worn hand and murmured some few words of kindly, womanly comfort which brought the color back into the other's bloodless cheeks. Master has locked himself in and will not answer me, she explained. All day I have waited to hear from him, for he often likes to be alone. But an hour ago I feared that something was amiss, so I went up and peeped through the keyhole. You must go up, Mr. Thaddeus, you must go up and look for yourself. I have seen Mr. Bartholomew Sholto in joy and in sorrow for ten long years, but I never saw him with such a face on him as that. Sherlock Holmes took the lamp and led the way, for Thaddeus Sholto's teeth were chattering in his head. So shaken was he that I had to pass my hand under his arm as he went up the stairs, where his knees were trembling under him. Twice as we ascended, Holmes whipped out the lens from his pocket and carefully examined marks, which appeared to me... Twice as we ascended... Ascended? That's not quite it. This sentence will be the death of me. Twice as we ascended, Holmes whipped out the lens from his pocket and carefully examined marks, which appeared to me to be mere shapeless smudges of dust upon the cocoa-nut matting which served as a stair carpet. He walked slowly from step to step, holding the lantern and shooting keen glances from left to right. Miss Morstan had remained behind with the frightened housekeeper. The third flight of stairs ended in a straight passage of some length, with a great picture in Indian tapestry upon the right of it and three doors upon the left. Holmes advanced along it in the same slow and methodical way, while we kept close at his heels, with our long black shadows streaming backward down the corridor. The third door was that which we were seeking. Holmes knocked, without receiving any answer, and then tried to turn the handle and force it open. 
It was locked on the inside, however, and by a broad and powerful bolt, as we could see when we held our lamp up against it. The key being turned, however, the hole was not entirely closed. Sherlock Holmes bent down to it and instantly rose again with a sharp intake of breath. <sighs> oh, there is something devilish in this, Watson, said he, more moved than I had ever seen him before. What do you make of it? I stooped to the hole and recoiled in horror. Moonlight was streaming into the room, and it was bright with a vague and shifty radiance, looking straight at me and suspended, as it were, in the air, for all beneath was in shadow. There hung a face, the very face of our companion Thaddeus. There was the same high, shining head, the same circular bristle of red hair, the same bloodless countenance. The features were set, however, in a horrible smile, a fixed and unnatural grin, which in that still and moonlit room was more jarring to the nerve than any scowl or contortion. So like was the face to that of our little friend that I looked round at him to make sure he was indeed still with us. Then I recalled to mind that he had mentioned his brother and he were twins. But this is horrible, I said to Holmes. What's to be done? The door must come down, he answered, and, springing against it, he put all of his weight upon the lock. It creaked and groaned, but did not give way. Together we flung ourselves upon it once more, and this time it gave way with a sudden snap, and we found ourselves within Bartholomew Sholto's chamber. It appeared to have been fitted up as a chemical laboratory. A double line of glass-stoppered bottles was drawn up, onto the wall opposite the door, and the table was littered over with Bunsen burners, test tubes, and retorts. In the corners stood carboys of acid in wicker baskets. One of these appeared to leak or have been broken, for a stream of dark-colored liquid had trickled out from it, and the air was heavy with a peculiarly pungent tar-like odor. A set of steps stood at one side of the room. In the midst of a litter of lath and plaster, and above them was an opening in the ceiling large enough for a man to pass through. At the foot of the steps, a long coil of rope was thrown carelessly together. By the table, in a wooden armchair, the master of the house was seated all in a heap, with his head sunk upon his left shoulder and that ghastly, inscrutable smile upon his face. He was stiff and cold, and had clearly been dead many hours. It seemed to me that not only his features, but all of his limbs were twisted and turned in the most fantastic fashion. By his hand upon the table there lay a peculiar instrument, a brown, close-grained stick with a stone head like a hammer, rudely lashed on with a coarse twine. Beside it was a torn sheet of notepaper with some words scrawled upon it. Holmes glanced at it and then handed it to me. "'You see?' he said, with a significant raising of the eyebrows. In the light of the lantern I read, with a thrill of horror, The Sign of the Fool. In God's name, what does it all mean? I asked. It means murder, said he, stooping over the dead man. Uh, yes, I expected it. Look here. He pointed to what looked like a long, dark thorn stuck in the skin just above the ear. "'It looks like a thorn,' said I. 
It is a thorn. You may pick it out, but be careful, for it is poisoned. I took it up between my finger and thumb. It came away from the skin so readily that hardly any mark was left behind. One tiny speck of blood showed where the puncture had been. This is all an insoluble mystery to me, I said. It grows darker instead of clearer. On the contrary, he answered. It clears every instant. I only require a few missing links to have an entirely connected case. We had almost forgotten our companion's presence since we entered the chamber. He was still standing in the doorway, the very picture of terror, wringing his hands and moaning to himself. Suddenly, however, he broke out into a sharp, querulous cry. The treasure is gone, he said. They've robbed him of the treasure. There is the hole through which we lowered it. I helped him. I helped him to do it. I was the last person who saw him. I left him here last night, and I heard him lock the door as I came downstairs. What time was that? Ten o'clock, and he's now dead, and the police will be called, and I shall be suspected as having a hand in it. Oh, yes, I'm sure that I shall, but you don't think so, gentlemen? Surely you don't think it was I. Is it likely I should have brought you here if it were I? Oh, dear! Oh, dear! I know that I shall go mad! He jerked his arms and stamped his feet in a kind of compulsive frenzy. You have no reason for fear, Mr. Sholto, said Holmes, kindly, putting his hand upon his shoulder. Take my advice and drive down to the station to report this matter to the police. Offer to assist them in every way. We shall wait here until your return. The little man obeyed in a half-stupefied fashion, and we heard him stumbling down the stairs in the dark. There you have it, my good folks. Chapter 5. Everyone, Sherlock Holmes, The Sign of Four. And again, we have found a note reading something the same, right? We find this note next to, um, I don't know for certain what it is, but I've got a suspicion that it's an opium pipe. Um, but uh, upon the table, there was a peculiar instrument. So this is next to the body of of uh, Bartholomew Sholto. A brown, close-grained stick with a stone head like a hammer, rudely lashed with coarse twine. Beside it was a torn sheet of notepaper with some words scrawled upon it. Holmes glanced at it and then handed it to me. It reads, The Sign of the Four. Now, the interesting thing to me, and this would be the interesting thing to me if I were in the place of Dr. Watson, is that we don't get a sign, right? It's not like a symbol that has been uh, drawn upon everything here. It is the words, the sign of the four. What the heck does that mean? Well, a lot of a lot of stuff happened in this chapter. So I'm going to present to us a Cheddarbrick question. We're going to review a little bit, and I'm going to roll on through. Um, uh, Prettius Spade says, uh, is there some kind of tontine going on here? I've got no idea how it's spelled. Uh, Prettius goes on and says, this feels like something LaRue would write more than Doyle. But then again, LaRue was probably inspired by Doyle. <laughs> um... 
Uh, in the, uh, let's see. Pretty Spade says, damn, we've moved from Wild West Mormon revenge story to full Halloween shenanigans with Joker Venom. Yeah, and so this is definitely something that I want to emphasize here, right? We, uh, in our last story, we had a, a murder scene, but it was a very, like, it was a really straightforward murder scene overall. Um, you know, some interesting touches, but, like, a guy is dead on the floor, and there's, like, we, we discover that there are oddities about the case, but consider the scene itself, right? And not the scene of the crime, but consider the scene as it would be filmed, like, in a show here, right? Consider almost the cinematography that we're experiencing here. Um, in the first story... We simply enter the room, and uh, we have these things sort of explained to us. It's pretty clinical. Um, yes, we find that the, the crime scene has some oddities to it, but the scene as it is described, the scene of the book, um, pretty straightforward. Dead body on the floor, blood, some stuff written on the wall, candle in the corner, this kind of stuff. We're on to some different stuff now, all right? This is some different-ish. We find ourselves walking in now onto a dark property shadows swaying all around with the light of the lantern the housekeeper crying in fear shaking pointing to the door saying you must go see for yourself we go up the hall casting long shadows down the staircase down the hall once again from the lantern creaking of floorboards we can imagine right even though that's like the one thing that's not described here as the most creepy haunted house shit there ever was we go to the door it's locked we look in through the keyhole and you can see the jump scare that happens here right not only is it a dead person with a terrible smile on their face and their head cocked over to one side, but it's the dead face of a person that just followed us up the stairs. This is Thaddeus Sholto's dead face with this terrible grin on it. Except it's not. It's his twin brother. But... The scene, not the crime scene, but the book scene. The scene as it would be filmed. Absolute nightmare stuff, isn't it? <laughs> so I want you to look at uh, the ways in which these scenes have been described. It almost seems a little bit like uh, uh, Arthur Conan Doyle maybe got some notes uh, about some some perhaps parts that people really enjoyed and he wanted to emphasize, or perhaps some parts that he needed to like ratchet up a little bit uh, but overall the description of this i would say is substantially more cinematic um than we got in the crime scene descriptions uh in uh in the first story not altogether more cinematic because remember those i mean the the story as we got into part two the chapters with the mormons those were really cinematic to me um uh but now we're doing that at the crime scenes themselves very interesting all right, there it is, a bit of review. We follow Miss Morstan to her mysterious benefactor. Uh, we follow this mysterious benefactor, Thaddeus Sholto, the son of uh, one of her father's war friends, right? These these two who are very close, and then, you know, one of them had uh, a daughter, one of them had twin sons, uh, and then we head on to the location of this treasure that has been revealed. As we arrive here in this chapter, the Pondicherry Lodge, where... This woman's father died 10 years ago, where the twin brothers, uh, uh, they were, 
They were convinced that this treasure lies, and in fact, they were correct. After six years of digging, they have discovered the treasure, and on this very night, as they arrive, Thaddeus Shelto proclaims two things. That's my brother, and he's dead, and the treasure is gone. Let us see if our next chapter has any more clues for us. As Sherlock examines the scene. Chapter 6. Sherlock Holmes gives a demonstration. All right now, Watson, said Holmes, rubbing his hands. We've got half an hour to ourselves. Let's make good use of it. My case is, as I've told you, almost complete, but we must not err on the side of overconfidence. Simple as the case seems, now there may be something deeper underlying it. Simple, I ejaculated. Surely, said he, with something of an air of a clinical professor expounding to his class. Just sit in the corner there that your footprints might not complicate matters. Now to work. In the first place, how did these folk come and go? The door has not been opened since last night. What about the window? He carried the lamp across to it, muttering his observations aloud all the while, but addressing them to himself rather than to me. Window is snibbed on the inner side. Framework is solid, no hinges at the side. Let us open it. No water pipe near. Roof quite out of reach. And yet a man has mounted by the window. It rained a little last night. Here is the print of a foot in the mould upon the sill. And here is a circular muddy mark, and here again upon the floor, and again by the table. You see here, Watson? This really is a pretty demonstration. I looked at the round, well-defined, muddy discs. Well, it's not a footprint. No, it's something more valuable to us. It is the impression of a wooden stump. You see here on the sill is the boot mark heavy boot with the broad metal heel, and beside it is the mark of the timber toe. It's it's the wooden-legged man. Quite so, but there has been someone else, a very able and efficient ally. Could you scale that wall, Doctor? I looked out of the open window. The moon still shone brightly upon that angle of the house. We were a good sixty feet from the ground, and look where I could. I could see no foothold nor as much as a crevice in the brickwork. It's absolutely impossible, I answered. Without aid, it is so. But perhaps you had a friend up here who lowered you this good stout rope, which I see in the corner, securing one end of it to this great hook upon the wall. Then, I think, if you were an active man, you might swarm up, wooden leg and all. You would depart, of course, in the same fashion, and your ally would draw up the rope, untie it from the hook, shut the window, snip it on the inside, and get away in the way that he originally came. As a minor point, it may be noted, he continued, fingering the rope, that our wooden-legged friend, though a fair climber, was not a professional sailor. His hands were far from horny. My lens discloses more than one blood mark, especially toward the end of the rope, from which I gather that he slipped down with such velocity he took the skin off his hand. All right, this is all very well, said I, but the thing comes more unintelligible than ever. How about this mysterious ally? How did he come into the room? Yes, the ally, repeated Holmes pensively. There are features of interest about this ally. He lifts the case from the regions of the commonplace. I fancy that this ally breaks fresh ground from the annals of crime in this country. 
although parallel cases suggest themselves from India and, if my memory serves me, from Senegambia. How came he then? I reiterated. The door is locked, the window is inaccessible. Was it through the chimney? The grate is too small, much too small, he answered. I had already considered that possibility. All right, then how? I persisted. You will not apply my precept, said he, shaking his head. How often have I said to you that when you've eliminated the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth? We know he did not come through the door, the window, or the chimney. We know that he could not have concealed in the room, as there is no concealment possible. Whence, then, did he come? He came in through the hole in the roof, I cried. Of course he did. He must have done so. If you would have the kindness to hold the lamp for me, we shall now extend our researches to the room above, the secret room in which the treasure was found. He mounted the steps, and, seizing a rafter with either hand, he swung himself up into the garret. Then, lying upon his face, he reached down for the lamp and held it while I followed him. The chamber in which we found ourselves was about ten feet one way and six the other. The floor was formed by the rafters, with thin lath plaster between, such that one walking had to step from beam to beam. The roof ran to an apex, and was evidently the inner shell of the true roof of the house. There was no furniture of any sort, and the accumulated dust of years lay thickly upon the floor. "'Here you are, you see,' said Sherlock Holmes, putting his hand against the sloping wall. "'This is a trapdoor which leads out upon the roof. I can press it back, and here is the roof itself, sloping at a gentle angle.' This, then, is the way by which number one entered. Let us see if we can find any other traces of his individuality. He held down the lamp to the floor, and as he did so, I saw for a second time that night a startled, surprised look come over his face. For myself, as I followed his gaze, my skin was cold under my clothes. The floor was covered thickly with the prints of a naked foot, clear, well-defined, perfectly formed, but scarce half the size of those of an ordinary man. Holmes, I said in a whisper, a child has done this horrible thing. He had recovered his self-possession in an instant. I was staggered for the moment, said he, but the thing is quite natural. My memory failed me, or I should have been able to foretell it. There is nothing more to be learned here. Let us go down. So what's your theory, then, after those footmarks? I asked eagerly when we had regained the lower room once more. My dear Watson, try a little analysis yourself, said he with a touch of impatience. You know my methods. Apply them, and it would be instructive to compare the results. I, I cannot conceive of anything which covers the facts, I answered. It will be clear to you soon he said in an offhand way. I think that there is nothing else of importance to learn here, but I will look. He whipped out his lens and tape measure and hurried about the room on his knees, measuring, comparing, examining, with his long, thin nose only a few inches from the planks, and his beady eyes gleaming and deep-set like those of a bird. So swift, silent, and furtive were his movements, like those of a trained bloodhound picking out a scent, that I could not but think of what a terrible criminal he would have made had he turned his energy and sagacity against the law instead of exerting them in its defense. As he hunted about, he kept muttering to himself, and finally he broke out into a loud crow of delight. Oh, 
yes, we certainly are in luck, said he. We ought to have very little trouble now. Number one has had the misfortune to tread in the creosote. You can see the outline of the edge of his small foot here in the side of this evil-smelling mess. The carboy has been cracked, you see, and the stuff has leaked out. All right, what then? I asked. Well, we've got him, that's all, said he. I know a dog that would follow that scent to the world's end. If a pack can track a trailed herring across a shire, how far can a specially trained hound follow so pungent a smell as this? Sounds like a sum in the rule of three. The answer should give us the... Oh, hello. Here are the accredited representatives of the law. Heavy steps and the clamor of loud voices were audible from below, and the hall door shut with a loud crash. Before they come, said Holmes, just put your hand here on this poor fellow's arm. I'm on his leg. What do you feel? The muscles are stiff as a board, I answered. Quite so. They're in a state of extreme contraction, far exceeding the usual rigor mortis. Coupled with this distortion of the face, this Hippocratic smile, or Rhesus Sardonicus, as the old writers called it, what conclusion would it suggest to your mind? Death from a powerful vegetable alkaloid, I answered. Some strychnine-like substance which would produce tetanus. That was the idea which occurred to me the instant I saw the drawn muscles of the face. Upon getting into the room, I at once looked for the means by which the poison had entered the system. As you saw, I discovered the thorn which had been driven, or shot, with no great force into the scalp. You observed that the part struck was that which would be turned toward the hole in the ceiling if the man were erect in his chair. Now examine the thorn. I took it up gingerly and held it in the light of the lantern. It was a long, sharp, and black thorn, with a glazed look near the point as though some gummy substance had dried upon it. The blunt end had been trimmed and rounded off with a knife. "'Is that an English thorn?' he asked. "'No, it certainly is not.' "'With all these data, you should be able to draw some inference. But here are the regulars. So the auxiliary forces must beat a retreat.' As he spoke, the steps which had been coming nearer sounded loudly on the passage, and a very stout, portly man in a grey suit strode heavily into the room. He was red-faced, burly, and plethoric, with a pair of very small, twinkling eyes which looked keenly out from these swollen and puffy pouches. He was closely followed by an inspector in uniform, and by the still palpitating Thaddeus Sholto. "'Here's a business!' he cried in a muffled, husky voice. "'Here's a pretty beastess, but who are all these? Why, the house seems to be as full as a rabbit warren.' "'I think you must recollect me, Mr. Atherley Jones,' said Holmes quietly. "'Why, of course I do,' he wheezed. "'It is Mr. Sherlock Holmes, the theorist. "'Remember you, I could never forget how you lectured us all "'on causes and inferences and effects at the Bishopgate jewel case. "'It is true you said us were on the right track, "'but you'll own now it was a good deal more luck than guidance.' It was a very simple piece of reasoning. Oh, come now, come now. Never be ashamed to own up. But what is all this bad business? Bad business, stern facts here, no room for theories. How lucky that I happened to be out at Norwood over another case. I was at the station when the message arrived. What do you think the man died of? Oh, this is hardly a case for me to theorise over, said Holmes dryly. No, 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 still. I can't deny that you hit the nail on the head sometimes. Dear me, 
door locked, I understand. Jewels worth half a million missing. How was the window? Fastened, but there are steps on the sill. Well, well, if it was fastened, steps could have nothing to do with the matter. That's common sense. Man might have died in a fit, but then the jewels are missing. <laughs> I've got a theory. Now these flashes do come upon me at times. Just step outside, Sergeant, and you, Mr. Salto, your friend can remain. What do you think of this, Holmes? Salto was on his own confession with his brother last night. The brother died in a fit on which Salto walked off with the treasure. How's that? On which the dead man very considerably... On which the dead man very considerably... I'm going to do it one more time, and I'm going to get it right this time, gang. Believe in me. Believe in me. On which the dead man very considerately got up and locked the door on the inside. <laughs> there is a flaw there. Let us apply common sense to the matter. This Thalian Salto was with his brother. There was a quarrel so much, we know. The brother is dead, and the jewels are gone. So much we also know. No one saw the brother from the time Thaddeus left him. His bed had not been slept in. Thaddeus is evidently in a most disturbed state of mind. His appearance is... Well, it's not attractive. You see that I am weaving my web round Thaddeus, the net to close upon him. <laughs> you are not quite in possession of the facts yet, said Holmes. This splinter of wood, which I have ever reason to believe is poisoned, was in the man's scalp where you see the mark. This card, inscribed as you see it, was upon the table, and beside it lay this rather curious stone-headed instrument. How does that all fit into your theory? Confirms it in every respect said the fat detective, pompously. House is full of Indian curiosities. Thaddeus brought this up, and if this splinter may be poisonous, Thaddeus may well have made murderous use of it. The card is some hocus-pocus. A blind, as like as not. The only question is, how did he depart? Oh, of course, there's a hole in the roof. With great activity, considering his bulk, he sprang up the steps and squeezed through into the garret, and immediately afterward we heard his exulting voice proclaiming that he had found the trap door. "'He can find something,' remarked Holmes, shrugging his shoulders. "'He has occasional glimmerings of reason.' "'Il n'y a pas de ce que c'est qui ont l'esprit.' You see, said Athelney Jones, reappearing again down the steps. Facts are better than mere theories after all. My view of the case is confirmed. There is a trap door communicating with the roof, and it is partly open. It was I who opened it. No, indeed. You did notice it, then? He seemed a little crestfallen at the discovery. Well, whoever knows his seat, it shows how our gentleman got away. Inspector! Yes, sir, from the passage. Ask Mr. Sholto to step this way. Yes, Mr. Sholto, it is my 
duty to inform you that anything which you say may be used against you. I arrest you in the Queen's name as being concerned in the death of your brother. There now, didn't I tell you? cried the poor little man, throwing out his hands and looking from one of us to the other. Don't trouble yourself about it, Mr. Sholto, said Holmes. I think that I can engage to clear you of the charge. Don't promise too much, Mr. Theorist. Don't promise too much, snapped the detective. You may find it harder than you think. Not only will I clear him, Mr. Jones, but I will make you a free present of the name and description of one of the two people who were in this room last night. His name, I've got every reason to believe, is Jonathan Small. He's a poorly educated man, small, active, with his right leg off and wearing a wooden stump, which is worn away upon the inner side. His left boot has a coarse, square-toed sole and an iron band round the heel. He's a middle-aged man, much sunburnt, and has been a convict. These few indications may be of some assistance to you, coupled with the fact that there is a good deal of skin missing from the palm of his hand. The other man... Oh, the other man? asked Athelney Jones in a sneering voice, but impressed nonetheless, as I could easily see, by the precision of the other's manner. It is a rather curious person, said Sherlock Holmes, turning upon his heel. I hope before very long to be able to introduce you to the pair of them. A word with you, Watson. He led me out to the head of the stair. This unexpected occurrence, he said, has caused us rather to lose sight of the original purpose of our journey. I've just been thinking so, I answered. It's not right that Miss Morstan should remain in this stricken house. No, you must escort her home. She lives with Mrs. Cecil Forrester in Lower Camberwell, so it's not very far. I will wait for you here if you will drive out again. Or perhaps you're too tired? Not by any means. Don't think I could rest now till I know more about this fantastic business. I have seen something of the rough side of life, but I give you my word that this quick succession of strange surprises tonight is shaking my nerve completely. I should like, however, to see the matter through with you, that I've got so far. Your presence will be of great service to me, he answered. We shall work out the case independently and leave this fellow Jones to exult over any mare's nest that he might choose to construct. When you have dropped Miss Morstan, I wish you to go to number three Pitchin Lane, down near the water's edge at Lambeth. The third house on the right side is a bird stuffer's. Sherman is his name. You will see a weasel holding a young rabbit in the window. Knock old Sherman up and tell him with my compliments that I want Toby at once. You will bring Toby back in the cab with you. It's a dog, I suppose? Yes, a queer mongrel with the most amazing power of scent. I should rather have Toby's help than that whole detective force of London. Or bring him then, said I. It's uh, one now. I ought to be back before three if I can get a fresh horse. And I, said Holmes, shall see what I can learn from Mrs. Burnstone and from the Indian servant, who, Mr. Thaddeus tells me, sleeps in the next garret. Then I shall study the great Jones's methods and listen to his not too delicate sarcasms. Wir sind gewohnt, dass die Menschen verronen, was sie nicht. Bestatten. Goth always was pithy. All right, folks. 
What do we think? We've got some thoughts here. Um, Pretty Spin says, I've got a bad feeling about where this story is going. I foresee lots of spooky Orientalism. Um, it is certainly possible, and I'm going to be on the lookout for that stuff, and I'll call it out uh, when, I, when I see it. I, this is not a guarantee I'll be able to catch everything, but um, no, there, there is certainly a sense of like, oh, yes, there are exotic things at play here, which virtually always, um, certainly in this era, but I mean, even nowadays... Um, is often reduced to a to something spooky, like you said, spooky Orientalism. You know this idea that um, that this mysterious other culture uh, has only dark things to offer, right? Um, doesn't often get into uh, you know <laughs> the the peace that people find in the various uh, uh, spiritual practices. Uh, it, you know, it doesn't it doesn't make any mention of you know uh, other elements of culture, food, uh, art, what have you. Uh, it is so often simply like, okay, what are the spookiest aspects of this thing, even if they're not entirely true? So we shall be on the lookout uh, for, as <laughs> as you have as you have said, spooky Orientalism. Um, um, Pretty Spade says, I can you uh, repeat that last phrase though? Um, perhaps Pretty Spade, you'll have to tell me which one. There's a bit of a delay. Uh, if you do, then I shall. Uh, I shall certainly endeavor to do so. Uh, Orly Rose says, very colonial mindset of any other culture being... Uh, oh, uh, a very colonial mindset of any other culture being savage and lesser. Yeah, certainly. Uh, the last sentence in the chapter? Yes, I certainly shall. Wir sind gewohnt, dass die Menschen verhohnen, was sie nicht bestehen. I believe it's German. Gross. Uh, here, let me, let me go ahead and I will just pop this whole last line into chat. There you are. Uh, my German pronunciation is better than my French, but I won't call it awesome. Folks, thank you very much for joining me. Um, and, uh, you know, let's, let's try to be kind of even handed here. Um, I think this seems like a decent chatter break to talk about some of this, like, spooky Orientalism Orientalism stuff. Um, we won't go into a great deal more detail about it right now. I simply want to, you know, remind you all to keep an eye out for it. But um, remember uh, the times at which other cultures are essentially used uh, with the... With the purpose just to like mystify or or like add a sense of mysticism even uh, to the <laughs> to the proceedings here, right? They are they are a flavor which is entirely designed to do one thing, um, and you know there there's often like uh, you know model minorities can come up too. Like it's not always presented in a negative way, but it is virtually always pr uh, um, uh, presented in a very reductive way. Um, I'm talking about uh, uh, sort of like poor representation in general, not specifically spooky Orientalism. Spooky Orientalism, that one is pretty much always in a negative way. Uh, but no, just general, um, uh, just general uh, sort of like reductive representation. Um, mostly negative, sometimes positive, but, but always with a... Um, uh, uh, with an inability to capture the nuance and often with an aim um, that's a little bit like, uh, you know, remember we talked about the, the sexy lamp idea, right? Sexy lamp. Um, 
the the idea that this story could really change very little if you removed uh, <laughs> the, a, a female character and instead inserted a sexy lamp, right? Just something that a a that is designed for a male character to sort of like either lust after or love or protect or rescue or what have you, right? Um, sort of an object to be uh, an object uh, uh, that gases up a male character's story. Similarly, reductive representation of these things uh, rarely serves as a way to explore other cultures or, uh, you know, this, this other representation, but much more often is simply a way to drive a, a much more colonial character's story. <laughs> So there it is. <laughs> Sanders says, it needs some work. I did not understand a word of it. Not that I speak the language, but when it's spoken to me, I normally understand it. Yeah, no, I, I certainly will not uh, claim to be very good at it. Wir sind gewohnt, dass die Menschen veronen was there that's about as close as i can get if i if i really leaned into it i think chances are i would start to sound uh like i like it was more of a prank than an intent so i'll say that much um <laughs> i would urge you to listen to a native speaker say some of these things but um uh frankly holmes was not one Uh, Orly Rose says, Sexy lamp always reminds me of the leg lamp from a Christmas story, and I cannot unsee it. I also get the idea of emptiness and fragility when I hear it. And Orly Rose, I think you are precisely on the right track. I don't know if it originated there, but I do think that there is a sense of, you know, exactly that, right? It, it is uh, reducing a what should be a character down to essentially an object which uh, serves as uh, fuel for a different character's story. I don't know. I don't know why it would sound like Yiddish. <laughs> Maybe I'm just not... Again, I could lean in really hard to it and it would sound cartoonish. Um, then again, the only two cultures that I, I feel like I can <laughs> really confidently go cartoonish on are uh, English and German. That is that is where that is where all my blood goes. Uh, my mom's side is super German and my dad's side is German and English. So... Yeah, if I'm gonna go cartoonish, it would be German, but I'm not gonna do it right now. I, I, I do, I do try to be very respectful. I, I, I don't know if I always accomplish that very well, but, but the intent is to, uh, to share these things out appropriately. Oh boy, now I'm all self-conscious, folks. A spot of review, chapters uh, five and six. We arrive at the, uh, the sort of, uh, essentially like a. Um, I mean, it's the Pondicherry Lodge. It is a hotel, but keep in mind that hotels were um, sometimes much, much longer staying uh, uh, in these days. And so um, I believe that Bartholomew Sholto had been staying here and they have been digging the place up. They've been digging the place up. They're trying to find the treasure. They finally get their hands on it. And uh, this is what prompted them to get in contact to meet Miss Morstan. And uh, Miss Morstan comes along with friends. Uh, friends being Sherlock and Watson. They all arrive, talk to Thaddeus Sholto for a bit. Uh, we arrive here, we find that Bartholomew Sholto has been murdered. 
Oh, dear. Bartholomew Sholto is dead in a chair in a real horror scene. Um, and in this second chapter, Holmes is uh, looking around at the scene. Uh, you'll have to probably go back and listen if you want the full recap of that. But suffice to say, uh, he finds that Bartholomew has been poisoned and that there were two people in this room. One uh, had a uh, was pretty athletic and had a wooden leg, and the other was uh, quite small, with bare feet about half the size of a... Uh, um, I suppose, of Sherlock himself. Now, that's where we find ourselves. Uh, there's Athelney Jones. Athelney Jones is a uh, another detective, um, kind of the, the main force, and we can see that Sherlock is already fed up with him, and probably for good reason. And now, now we proceed on to Chapter 7, the episode of The Barrel in which Watson has some errands to run. Chapter 7. The episode of The Barrel. The police had brought a cab with them, in this, I escorted Miss Morstan back to her home. After the angelic fashion of women, she had borne trouble with a calm face as long as there was someone weaker than herself to support, and I had found her bright and placid by the side of the frightened housekeeper. In the cab, however, she first turned faint and then burst into a passion of weeping. So sorely had she been tried by the adventures of the night. She's told me since that she thought me cold and distant upon that journey. She little guessed the struggle within my breast, or the effort of self-restraint which held me back. My sympathies and my love went out to her, even as my hand had in the garden. I felt that years of the conventionalities of life could not teach me to know her sweet, brave nature, as had this one day of strange experiences. Yet there were two thoughts which sealed the words of affection upon my lips. She was weak and helpless, shaken in mind and nerve. It was to take her at a disadvantage to obtrude love upon her at such a time. Worse still, she was rich. If Holmes's searches were successful, she would be an heiress. Was it fair? Was it honorable that a half-pay surgeon would take such advantage of intimacy which chance had brought about? Might she not look upon me as some mere vulgar fortune-seeker? I could not bear to risk that that thought should cross her mind. This Agra treasure intervened like an impassable barrier between us. It was nearly two o'clock when we reached Mrs. Cecil Forrester's. The servants had retired hours ago, but Mrs. Forrester had been so interested by the strange message which Miss Morstan had received, she had sat up in the hope of her return. She opened the door herself, a middle-aged, graceful woman, and it gave me joy to see how tenderly her arm stole around the other's waist and how motherly was the voice in which she greeted her. She was clearly no mere paid dependent, but an honored friend. I was introduced, and Mrs. Forrester earnestly begged me to step in and tell me of her adventures. What? <laughs> now listen here, young man. I want to tell you what I've been up to. I was introduced, and Mrs. Forrester earnestly begged me to step in and tell her our adventures. I explained, however, the importance of my errand, and promised faithfully to call and report any progress which we might make in the case. As we drove away, I stole a glance back, 
and I still seem to see that little group on the step. The two graceful clinging figures, the half-opened door, the hall light shining through the stained glass, the barometer, and the bright stair rods. It was soothing to catch even that passing glimpse of a tranquil English home in the midst of the wild, dark business which had absorbed us. And the more I thought of what happened, the wilder and darker it grew. I reviewed the whole extraordinary sequence of events as I rattled on through the silent, gaslit streets. There was the original problem. That, at least, was pretty clear now. The death of Captain Morstan, the sending of the pearls, the advertisement, the letter. We had had light upon all those events. They had led us, however, to a deeper and far more tragic mystery. The Indian treasure. The curious plan found among Morstan's baggage. The strange scene at Major Sholto's death. The rediscovery of the treasure immediately followed by the murder of the discoverer and very singular accompaniments to the crime. The footsteps, the remarkable weapons, the words upon the card corresponding with those upon Captain Morstan's chart. Here was indeed a labyrinth in which a man less singularly endowed than my fellow lodger might well despair of ever finding the clue. Pynchon Lane was a row of shabby two-storied brick houses in the lower quarter of Lambeth. I had to knock for some time at number three before I could make my impression. At last, however, there was a glint of a candle behind the blind, and a face looked out of the upper window. "'Go on, you drunken vagabond!' said the face. "'You kick up any more row, and I'll open up the candles and let out for to treat dogs upon you!' "'If you let out just one, that's what I came for,' said I. "'Go on, then,' yelled the voice. "'So help me, gracious, I got a wiper in the bag, "'and I'm dropping on your head if you don't hook it.' "'But I, I want a dog,' I cried. "'I won't be argued with,' shouted Mr. Sherman. "'Now stand clear, for when I say three, down goes the wiper.' "'Mr. Sherlock Holmes,' I began, "'but the words had a most magical effect.' for the window instantly slammed down, and within a minute the door was unbarred and open. Mr. Sherman was a lanky, lean old man, with stooping shoulders, a stringy neck, and blue-tinted glasses. "'A friend of Mr. Sherlock is always welcome,' said he. "'Step in, sir. Keep clear of that badger he bites. Oh, naughty, naughty, would you take a nip at the gentleman?' This to a stoat, which thrust its wicked head and red eyes between the bars of its cage. "'You don't mind that, sir. It's just a slow worm. Ain't got no fangs, so I guess at the run of the room. Keeps the beetles down. Uh, you must not mind my being just a little short with you at first. If I'm guyed at by the children, there's many a one just come down this lane and knock me up.' What was it Mr. Sherlock Holmes wanted, sir? He wanted a dog of yours. <laughs> yeah, that'd be Toby. Yeah, Toby was a name. Toby lives at number seven on the left there. He moved slowly forward with his candle among the queer animal family, which he had gathered around him. In the uncertain, shadowy light, I could see dimly that there were glancing, glimmering eyes peeping down at us from every cranny and corner. Even the rafters above our heads were lined by solemn fowls who lazily shifted their weight from one leg to the other as our voices disturbed their slumbers. 
Toby proved to be an ugly, long-haired, lop-eared creature, half spaniel, half lurcher, brown and white in color, with a very clumsy waddling gait. It accepted, after some hesitation, a lump of sugar, which the old naturalist handed to me, and, having thus sealed an alliance, it followed me to the cab, and made no difficulties about accompanying me. It had just struck three on the palace clock when I found myself, once more, back at Pondicherry Lodge. The ex-prizefighter McMurdo, I found, had been arrested as an accessory, and both he and Mr. Sholto had been marched off to the station. Two constables guarded the narrow gate, but they allowed me to pass with the dog on my mentioning of the detective's name. Holmes was standing at the doorstep, with his hands in his pockets, smoking his pipe. "'Ah, you have him there,' said he. "'Good dog, then. Athelney Jones has gone.' We've had an immense display of energy since you left. He has arrested not only friend Thaddeus, but the gatekeeper, the housekeeper, and the Indian servant. We've got the place to ourselves, but for a sergeant upstairs, leave the dog here and come on up. We tied Toby to the hall table and reascended the stairs. The room was as we had left it, save that a sheet had been draped over the central figure. A weary-looking police sergeant reclined in the corner. "'Lend me your bull's eye, Sergeant,' said my companion. "'Now tie this bit of card round my neck, so as it hangs in the front of me. "'Thank you. Now I must kick off my boots and stockings. "'Just you carry them down with you, Watson. I'm going to do a little climbing. "'And dip my handkerchief to the creosote. "'Yes, that will do. Now come up to the garret with me for a moment.' "'We clambered up through the hall. "'Holmes turned his light once more upon the footsteps in the dust.' "'I wish you particularly to notice these footmarks,' said he. "'Do you observe anything noteworthy about them?' Uh, "'They belong to a child or a small woman. "'Apart from their size, though, is there anything else?' "'They appear much as normal footmarks.' "'Not at all. Look here. "'This is the print of a right foot in the dust. "'Now I make one with my naked foot beside it. "'Yes, and what is the chief difference?' Your toes are all cramped together. The other print has got each toe distinctly divided. Quite so. That is the point. Bear in mind. Now, would you kindly step over to that flap window and smell the edge of the woodwork? I shall stay here, as I've got this handkerchief in my hand. I did as he directed, and was instantly conscious of a strong, tarry smell. That is where he put his foot getting out. If you can trace him, I should think that Toby will have no difficulty... Now run downstairs, loose the dog, and look out for Blondin. By the time I got out under the grounds, Sherlock Holmes was on the roof, and I could see him like an enormous glowworm crawling very slowly along the ridge. I lost sight of him behind a stack of chimneys, but he presently reappeared and then vanished once more upon the opposite side. When I made my way round there, I found him seated at one of the corner eaves. "'Is that you, Watson?' he cried. "'Yeah!' "'This is the place!' What is that black thing down there? Water barrel. Is a top on it? Yeah. No sign of a ladder? No. Oh, confound the fellow. It's a most breakneck place. I ought to be able to come down where he could climb up. The water pipe feels pretty firm. There it goes anyway. There was a scuffling of feet and the lantern began to come steadily down the side of the wall. Then, with a light spring, he came down to the barrel and from there to the earth. It was easy to follow him, said he, drawing on his stockings and boots. Tiles were loosened the whole way along, and in his hurry he dropped this. 
It confirms my diagnosis, as you doctors express it. The object which she held up to me was a small pocket or pouch woven out of colored grasses, with a few tawdry beads strung round it. In shape and size, it was not unlike a cigarette case. Inside were a half-dozen spines of dark wood, sharp at one end, rounded at the other, just like that which had struck Bartholomew Sholto. "'They are hellish things,' said he. "'Look out, you don't prick yourself. I'm delighted to have them, for the chances are they are all he has. There's less of a chance of you or me finding one in our skin before long. I would sooner face a martini bullet myself.' Are you game for a six-mile trudge, Watson? Certainly, I answered. Your leg will stand it? Oh, yeah. Here you are, doggy. Good old Toby. Smell it, Toby. Smell it. He pushed the creosote handkerchief under the dog's nose while the creature stood with its fluffy legs separated, and with a most comical cock to its head like a connoisseur sniffing the bouquet of a famous vintage. Holmes then threw the handkerchief to a distance, fastened a stout cord to the mongrel's collar, and led him to the foot of the water barrel. The creature instantly broke to a succession of high, tremulous yelps, and, with his nose on the ground and his tail in the air, pattered off on a pace which strained his leash and kept us at the top of our speed. The east had been gradually whitening, and we could see, now, some distance in the cold gray light. The square, massive house, with its black, empty windows and high, bare walls, towered up, sad and forlorn, behind us. Our course led right across the grounds, in and out among trenches and pits in which they were scarred and intersected. The whole place, with its scattered dirt heaps and ill-grown shrubs, had a blighted, ill-omened look, which harmonized with the black tragedy which hung over it. On reaching the boundary wall, Toby ran along, whining eagerly underneath its shadow, and stopped finally in a corner screened by a young beech. Where the two walls joined, several bricks had been loosened, and the crevices left were worn down and rounded upon the lower side as though they had been frequently used as a ladder. Holmes clambered up, and, taking the dog from me, he dropped it over upon the other side. "'There's the print of Wooden Leg's hand,' he remarked as I mounted up beside him. "'You see the slight smudge of blood upon the white plaster. What a lucky thing it is that we've had no heavy rain since yesterday. The scent will lie upon the road in spite of eight and twenty hours' start.' I confess, I had my doubts myself when I reflected upon the great traffic which had passed along the London road in the interval. My fears were soon appeased, however. Toby never hesitated or swerved, but waddled on in his peculiar rolling fashion. Clearly, the pungent smell of the creosote rose high above the other contending scents. "'Do not imagine,' said Holmes, "'that I depend for my success in this case upon the mere chance of one of our fellows having put his foot in the chemical.' I have got knowledge now which would enable me to trace him in many different ways. This, however, is the readiest, and, since fortune has put it into our hands, I should be culpable if I neglected it. It has, however, prevented the case from becoming the pretty little intellectual problem which at one time it promised to be. There might have been some credit to be gained out of it, but for this too palpable clue. "'There is credit and to spare,' said I. "'I assure you, Holmes.' I marvel at the means by which you obtain your results in your cases, even more than I did in that Jefferson Oak murder. The thing seems to me deeper and more inexplicable. How is it, for example, could you describe with such confidence the wooden-legged man? <laughs> My dear boy, it was simplicity itself. I don't wish to be theatrical. It's all too patent and above board. 
Two officers who are in command of a convict guard learn an important secret as to a buried treasure. A map is drawn for them by an Englishman named Jonathan Small. You remember that we saw the name upon the chart in Captain Molson's possession. He had signed it on behalf of himself and his associates, the sign of the four, as he somewhat dramatically called it. Aided by this chart, the officers, or one of them, gets the treasure and brings it to England, leaving, as we will suppose, some condition under which he received it unfulfilled. Now then, why did not Jonathan Small get the treasure himself? The answer is obvious. The chart is dated at a time when Morstan was brought into close association with convicts. Jonathan Small did not get the treasure because he and his associates were themselves convicts and could not get away. But, oh, that's mere speculation, said I. It's more than that. It is the only hypothesis which covers the facts. Let us see how it fits with the sequel. Major Sholto remains at a peace for some years, happy in the possession of the treasure. Then he receives a letter from India, which gives him great fright. What was that? A letter to say that the men whom he had wronged had been set free. Or had escaped. That is much more likely, for he would have known what their terms of imprisonment were. It would not have been a surprise to him. So what does he do? He guards himself against a wooden-legged man. A white man, mark you, for he mistakes a white tradesman for him and actually fires a pistol at him. Now, only one white man's name is on the chart. The others are either Hindus or Mohammedans. There is no other white man. Therefore, we may say with confidence that the wooden-legged man is identical with Jonathan Small. Does the reasoning strike you as being faulty? No, it's clear and precise. Well, now let us put ourselves in the place of Jonathan Small. Let us look at it from his point of view. He comes to England with the double idea of regaining what he would consider to be his rights and also having his revenge upon the man who had wronged him. He found out where Sholter lived and very possibly he established communications with someone inside the house. There is this butler, Lal Rao, whom we have not seen. Miss Burnstone gives him far from a good character. Saul could not find out, however, where the treasure was hid, for no one ever knew, save the Major and one faithful servant, who had died. Suddenly, Small learns that the Major is on his deathbed. In a frenzy, lest the secret of the treasure die with him, he runs the gauntlet of the guards, makes his way to the dying man's window, and is only deterred from entering by the presence of his two sons. Mad with hate, however, against the dead man, he enters the room that night searches his private papers in hope of discovering some memorandum related to the treasure, and finally leaves a memento of his visit in short inscription upon the card. He had doubtless planned beforehand that, should he slay the Major, he would leave some record upon the body as a sign that it was not a common murder, but, from the point of view of the four associates, something in the nature of an act of justice. Whimsical and bizarre conceits of this kind are common enough in the annals of crime, and usually afford valuable indications as to the criminal. Do you follow all this? Very clearly. Now, what could Jonathan Small do? He could only continue to keep a secret watch upon the efforts made to find the treasure. Possibly he leaves England and only comes back at intervals. Then comes the discovery of the garret, and he is instantly informed of it. We again trace the presence of some confederate in the household. Jonathan, with his wooden leg, is utterly unable to reach the lofty room of Bartholomew Sholto. He takes with him, however, a rather curious associate, who gets over this difficulty, but dips his foot into creosote, whence comes Toby and a six-mile limp for a half-pay officer with a damaged tender Achilles. 
but it was his, it was the associate, not Jonathan, who committed the crime. Quite so. And rather to Jonathan's disgust, to judge by the way he stamped around when he got to the room, he bore no grudge against Bartholomew Shelter and would have preferred that he could have simply bound and gagged him. He would not have wished to put his head in a halter. There was no help for it, however. The instincts of his companion had broken out, and the poison had done its work, so Jonathan Small left his record, lowered the treasure box to the ground, and followed it himself. That was the train of events, as far as I can decipher them. Of course, as to his personal appearance, he must be middle-aged, and he must have been sunburned after serving his time in the Adamans. His height is readily calculated from the length of his stride, and we know that he was bearded. His hairiness was the one point which impressed itself upon Thaddeus Shorto when he saw him at the window. I don't know if there's anything else. The associate? Oh, well, there's no great mystery in that. But you will know all about it soon enough. Mm, how sweet the morning air is. See how that one little cloud floats like a pink feather for some gigantic flamingo? Now the red rim of the sun pushes itself over the London cloud bank. It shines on a good many folk, but none, I dare to bet, who are on a stranger errand than you and I. How small we feel with our petty ambitions and strivings in the presence of the great elemental forces of nature. Are you well up in your Jean-Paul? Fairly so. I worked back to him through Carlisle. That was like following the brook to the parent lake. It makes one curious but profound remark. That was like following the brook to the parent lake. He makes one curious but profound remark. It is that the chief proof of man's real greatness lies in his perception of his own smallness. It argues, you see, a power of comparison and of appreciation, which is itself a proof of nobility. There's much food for thought in Richter. You've not got a pistol, have you? I've got my stick. It is possible we may need something of the sort if we get to their lair. Jonathan, I shall leave to you, but if the other turns nasty, I shall shoot him dead. He took out his revolver as he spoke, and having loaded two chambers, he put it back into his right-hand pocket in his jacket. We had, during this time, followed the guidance of Toby down the half-rural villa-lined roads which lead to the metropolis. Now, however, we were beginning to come among continuous streets where laborers and dockmen were already astir, and slatternly women were taking down shutters and brushing doorsteps. At the square-topped corner of public houses, business was just beginning, and rough-looking men were emerging, rubbing their sleeves across their beards after their morning wet. Strange dogs sauntered up and stared wonderingly at us as we passed, but our inimitable Toby looked neither to the left nor to the right, but trotted onward, with his nose to the ground and an occasional eager whine, which spoke of a hot scent. We had traversed Streatham, Brixton, Camberwell, and now found ourselves in Kennington Lane, having borne away through the side streets to the east of the Oval. The men whom we pursued seemed to have taken a curious zigzag road, with the idea probably of escaping observation. They had never kept to the main road if a parallel side street would serve their turn. At the foot of Kennington Lane they had turned left, through Bond Street and Miles Street, where the latter street turns in a night's place, Toby ceased to advance but began to run backward and forward, with one ear cocked and the other drooping, the very picture of canine indecision. Then he waddled around in circles, looking up to us from time to time, as if to ask for sympathy in his embarrassment. "'What the deuce is the matter with the dog?' growled Holmes. "'They surely would not take a cab or go off in a balloon?' 
Perhaps they stood there for some time, I suggested. Ah, it's all right. He's off again, said my companion in a tone of relief. He was indeed off, for after sniffing round, he suddenly made up his mind and darted away with an energy and determination such as he had not yet shown. The scent appeared to be much hotter than before, for he had not even to put his nose to the ground, but tugged on his leash and tried to break into a run. I could see by the gleam in Holmes's eye that he thought we were nearing the end of our journey. Our course now ran down Nine Elms until we came to Broderick and Nelson's large timber yard, just past the White Eagle Tavern. Here, the dog, frantic with excitement, turned down through the side gate into the enclosure where the sawyers were already at work. On the dog raced through sawdust and shavings, down an alley, round a passage, between two woodpiles, and finally, with a triumphant yelp, sprang upon a large barrel, which still stood upon the hand trolley on which it had been brought. With lolling tongue and blinking eyes, Toby stood upon the cask, looking from one to the other of us for some sign of appreciation. The staves of the barrel and the wheels of the trolley were smeared with a dark liquid, and the whole air was heavy with the smell of creosote. Sherlock Holmes and I looked blankly at each other, and then burst simultaneously into an uncontrollable fit of laughter. Oh boy, oh boy. Yeah, no, this one's being mean to me, isn't it? I'm getting bullied. I'm getting bullied by by Arthur Conan Doyle. All right, folks, here we have it. We have followed our intrepid nose, Toby, the mongrel dog, who rushes valiantly out into the streets and traces all the various paths with this trail of creosote smell. We get to a confusing point in the road, but after much indecision, he decides and hurries on into a lumberyard where we find a delivery barrel full of creosote. <laughs> <laughs> Not the trail that we were hoping to find, uh, but it turns out that Toby, having reached a, a point of indecision, decided to follow the closest, strongest smell of creosote, which is, of course, inevitably a barrel full of creosote, totally unrelated to the crime at hand. <laughs> well, good luck, Sherlock and Watson. We shall be revisiting you soon, I am sure. Everybody, thank you so very much for joining me today. My name is Sam, this is Sidecar Stories, and if you want to find out more about the channel, of course, go ahead and follow the links, links command in Twitch, otherwise simply go to linktree slash sidecar stories, L-I-N-K-T-R dot E-E slash sidecar stories. There you go, folks. Orly Rose, Proteus Spade, Gems, grand to have you all here. Uh, Pretty Spade says, Sherlock makes a lot of use of the I know a guy tool in this story. Indeed he does, and frankly, that is one that I will forgive him for. I, I I have a soft spot for I know a guy, and I've got a softer spot for gadgets. Um, oh, I've got a gadget for that. Uh, <laughs> especially when the gadgets are used in uh, unexpected ways, um, uh, which of course is the... Uh, that's, that, that's that first little sniff that they give you in, uh, in uh, the James Bond movies, and then they get you with all the rest of it, but... I haven't watched one in a while. Uh, just know I'm a big gadgets guy. Big gadgets guy. Yeah, I I do I do enjoy the I I know a guy. Um, the, yeah, the expertise I really enjoy the um, uh, 
I really enjoy the um, like heist movies for the same reason. I really like, frankly, I think it's part of the reason I like D and D so much. I really love watching all of these various like experts get together uh, who can all do something that the others can't. And I, I, you know, I love watching the ways that that plays out. Um, just a lot of fun, you know. And apparently, I am not the only one. This is probably the trouble. I didn't pause to drink water nearly as often as I should have. Folks, thank you very much for joining me today. Of course, this is Tuesday, which makes this Vintage Sidecar, where we shed some light on classic lit. On Wednesdays, we have Side Cannons! The tabletop RPG wing of Sidecar Stories. And then on Thursdays, we have got Flying Sidecar, a voice actor's venture through some stories that we all love. However, this Thursday, we will not be reading. Um, tomorrow, I still plan to do a stream. Um, I would really love to get us, like, heading back to Castle of Esperal because I really want to take some time after that, once we are sort of, like, at a good pausing place. I want to take some time after that to spend some time over in the server on Wednesdays. I would love to, like, run adventures in there on Wednesdays for a little while. Um, uh, so... With that in mind, uh, come hang out tomorrow. We have entered the gate town of Fabra, and we are learning a great deal about the War of the Broken Claw, about Cryonis. Uh, we have now just met Redick, uh, who appears to be some sort of voice of the people, or perhaps you would call him an agitator. We shall find out. Everybody, thank you so very much. Uh, for being here with me. Um, yeah, we're going to have a good time tomorrow. Um, on Thursday, I hope that y'all will have a good time. I am going to be busy with uh, with family and cooking, uh, so I'm going to be having a good time. Um, and uh, I will certainly miss you. I'll miss you all a lot. I hope you have a fantastic week. Um, enjoy your holidays. Uh, do something fun, especially Proteus Spade. Uh, and to all of you grand folks, I will see you all tomorrow. Uh, but folks, Sander, Orly Rose, Gems, Pretty Spade, I hope y'all have a good one. I'll see you later on. Oh, I wonder if there's anybody to raid over to. Generally, there's not on a Tuesday. Yeah. Nobody today. That's okay. Um, also, I guess, why not? Um, I just began, um, I, I played my first round. It took me a long time because I was learning the system. Uh, and I'm going to make some, like... I will. I'll, I'll link in some like cheat sheets and stuff. But um, I played my first round of um, uh, Rangers of Shadow Deep last night, or should I say, early last, or early uh, this morning. Um, uh, it took a long time. Uh, I'm definitely. I need to. Uh, I need to make a spreadsheet where I can auto populate some of the stuff because going back to like reference all of the the the, the stats of different creatures and stuff was. A nightmare so uh I, I will make those up and and try to post those as i get them but uh it was quite a bit of fun it was quite a bit of fun and uh, i do hope that y'all will check it out give it a try rangers of shadow deep uh it is a tabletop miniatures game but it's got a heavy sort of rpg element to it and so if you were interested in having your own adventures in the realms of recetus your own adventures um i would encourage you to check this out you can determine sort of what part of the part of the frontier you are in um i have decided that uh my my ranger uh his name is myro uh 
uh, you were you were uh, you could potentially be part of the Silver Star Guild, which is uh, one of a, a number of guilds, but it is one of the best revered and sort of widest known guilds uh, that specifically explores the Dire Band, that area between totally unexplored uh, 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 frontier and settled frontier. That little space in between is, for whatever reason, home to uh, some of the most ghastly uh, beasts. <laughs> <laughs> uh, of anywhere in the frontier. So uh, if you want to join the Silver Star Guild, uh, we have got those adventures. Um, I'm going to be posting about my adventures. Um, oftentimes the tabletop miniatures community will call those battle reports. Um, uh, but it's essentially just like a, a quick account of the adventure that you had. Um, and uh, this one, funnily enough, can be played solo or cooperative. And so, uh, yeah, if y'all want to, if y'all want to go in and uh, play some Rangers of Shadowdeep, um, I would encourage you to do so, and then uh, give us your, your battle reports over in the Realms of Recetus Discord. Uh, I'm, I'm going to be posting some pictures uh, pretty soon. I I decided specifically not to use uh, some of my uh, like fancier terrain, because I kind of wanted to show off, like, you can kind of just use what you've got on hand, and it works totally fine. Um, so I'll be posting about that over in both Discords, but uh, if you want to post your own adventures, that'll be the Realms of Recetus Discord. Um, everybody... Thanks for joining me here. I love y'all, and I'll see you later on. I'll see you in Discord.